Our age has very rightly been described as an age of distraction. We are unable to concentrate, to focus, to center ourselves, to persist in our work. We are unable to study at deep levels, to complete assignments, to pay attention to just about anything. And the distractions are limitless. They come from all sorts of places. But we are fighting a losing battle against an array of easy and flashy and glitzy and enticing alternatives to doing those things that we should be doing, to seeing the things that we should be seeing. And it's a modern problem. It's related to modern technologies. And this is why you want to, a few weeks, join us whenever we have our, our J-Term Sunday School class. Pastor King and myself will be looking at technology and the Christian family. And so this is your, your paid service announcement for that before we get there. Because we're going to talk about how we view technology. But there are other non-technological kinds of distractions that keep us from seeing and from doing the most important things. These are decidedly not modern. These are ancient, and these are persistent stumbling blocks. And we have one of those described for us in in the book of James. James writes in James 2, familiar verses, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's hard not to let appearances get in the way, to to distract us from those things that matter. It's hard not to have our attention drawn to those things that are are beautiful, that are ornate, that are are, are well-produced and glitzy and glamorous. It's also hard not to have our attention drawn to things that are clumsy or silly or even wretched. Those get our attention too. This evening, with a little help from the Apostle Paul, we can have our mind drawn back to something that is truly good, something that we should truly see, something that we should actually reflect upon and desire to imitate. Paul is going to describe his ministry to the church in Thessalonica. He's going to describe it it in particular details about himself and about how he ministers. And you want to have your eyes drawn to that, to see how Paul does it, because it allows him to draw the attention of this church to Christ himself. And as we are drawn to Paul's example, we may be drawn to Christ and we may be able to draw others to Christ through us if we follow him well. So let's pray on this, ask the Lord to help us in that endeavor. Our Lord God, we thank you for the precious word that you have given to us and all its forms, all the the ways in which you have presented it to us. The law, the prophets, the narratives, and the epistles. And pray, Father, now as we consider what the Apostle Paul wrote to this church that he had visited, that we might be taught in our hearts to imitate him, even as he imitates Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The the contention tonight, as you look at this passage that should be revealed to you, is that the gospel comes and it comes at a cost. And Paul is going to declare to the church, and as we open it up, we're going to look in verse 1 and verse 4, and you'll see that the gospel has truly been successful in Thessalonica. There was a great success when the word was proclaimed. But then in verses 2 through 11, Paul is going to show us the price of gospel success. And it's, it's not so much a particular kind of sacrifice, but as much as a particular way of ministering. Paul is going to show us seven marks of a faithful ministry, which are really marks of Christian virtue, something that should be imitated not only by, by someone seeking to do that kind of ministry, but by every believer in this church. 
And that points us to what is ultimately going to be a gospel success. And so we'll, we'll look at this passage and we'll attempt to apply it well. So look first in verse 1. Paul begins there talking about the success. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. This is a glorious report. He says that he is, he's celebrating before them what had happened when he had come to them before. He had come, he had proclaimed the gospel, and the gospel had been received. It did not come in a form that was, that was empty or that was worthless. The apostle couldn't say that about every city that he visited. None of the apostles could. In fact, this was a, a feature that, that, that our Lord Jesus taught them to expect. There were times where they would not be successful. He told them in Matthew 10, 14, If whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. But not, that was not the case in Thessalonica. When he had come to them and made that proclamation, the Spirit had worked in them. A, a church had been created of those who had heard the word proclaimed, who had heard Christ testified before him, and they believed. They, they found an answer to, to all of the problems that they had, most especially the problem of their sin. They found that their sin could be taken away, their guilt would be dealt with, and that there was, in fact, a better way to live than the way in which they had been living, which was for themselves. And the reality in that happening to them the, the the great gift that was given to them in Christ's coming in that way was that it also cost them their embracing of Christ had invited opposition it had made their life interesting in ways in which they didn't want their life to become interesting there were hardships that had, had followed it but the prize for this church for these new members was that they, they now possessed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul wants them to know that it didn't come without a cost it didn't come Without a cost, there was first off, there was the cost of the blood of Christ, that the Son of God had come into the world, had taken on flesh, and that even in spite of all of his obedience, of doing everything right, the consequence for him was death, because not of his own sin, but because of theirs, because of yours. And Paul also points out that the burden is not only borne by Christ, it's also borne by the prophets and the apostles, those who, who followed the great king. And Paul is pointing out that while grace is free, there's there's nothing cheap about the kingdom of God. There's, there, there's expense and cost all around it. There was expense for Christ. There was expense for him. And ultimately there's going to be for them. And they should be able to look at Paul. And they should be able to see that for themselves. This is what it means to follow Christ. So Paul's intention is to remind them in detail about his, his manner, the way he behaved among them, what his experience was, how he had, how he had faced trials even while he was ministering to them. And he... He does so that they can be reminded to imitate him even as he imitates Christ. So Paul is teaching them to follow his example. And what kind of example does he give? Well, the first part of that example is that he has divine approval. If you look down in verse 4, Paul says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul has been approved by God, this man who has lived such a wicked and wretched life, being a pursuer and a persecutor of God's people, had been turned from unbelief to belief. He had been made to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. His heart had been subdued and he had become a follower and a servant. And a faithful servant he was. He, he, he took that, that, that message that was given to him and he obeyed God in, in not only keeping it for himself and enjoying the benefits of it, but going out into the world and proclaiming it in dark places, in hostile places. He was approved by God. 
Paul was, was not, not going to be disqualified along the way as some men were. He was going to continue to make the right choices and go in the right direction. He was not working to please men or to pursue wealth, but he was working to, to pursue obedience to God. And especially to pursue the fruit of the gospel, not only that, was, that he had enjoyed, but among all those that would hear him. And this is actually a choice that, that we're reminded that we are making every single day. To be earthly minded or to be heavenly minded. To, to think... What are God's priorities and what are the way in which he would want me to go or to give myself to the world and to follow the distractions? And this is, again, where Paul gives us a useful example and helps us to do good self-examination as we compare ourselves with his life. So, let, so follow me, with me now as we go through verses 2 through 11. We're going to find seven marks of faithful ministry in this church. Verse 2, Paul says, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Paul first reminds them of his boldness when he originally spoke to them. And he actually uses here a technical term. He's not saying he's brave, although Paul is absolutely brave in what he does. He's saying that he had openness of speech. Is that that he was an unhindered speaker about Christ. There was nothing that he was holding back. He was, he was openly declaring the truth. And, and this is actually a, a, a term that is treasured in the Roman Republic, is that they, they, they frequently spoke of the need to have freedom of speech. It was, it was a useful corrective to wrongs that could take place in the empire. But it was also a mark of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus appeared for the, before the high priest in John 18, it says... The high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. He made clear that that he was an open speaker about himself and about his gospel. And and, and the, the apostle Paul has embraced the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is declaring openly the truth in these public places. He's not seeking to talk about Jesus in secret. He's not looking for for private audiences of those who are wealthy. He's going to to where he's going to be heard, even if it's the most dangerous place, then he can go. He had openness and a freeness when he spoke. He wasn't embarrassed or self-conscious in talking about Jesus. He didn't hold back hard truths. You have to remember the context. Where was Paul coming from when he came to Thessalonica? He came from Philippi. This was a man who was fresh off of beating he was fresh off of hunger, starvation while he was in prison, fresh off of cold, fresh off of, of, of being in bondage. And yet here he is coming and doing the same thing again in the next city that he comes to with no expectation of anything else that would happen but the same thing. Now look at verse 3. Here's a second mark that goes along with the first one. As he's, he's openly proclaiming he is also being truthful. He says, our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. He was preaching a radical and a subversive message and proclaiming Christ as king. But he's proclaiming on, that on his part, there was no mistake that he was made. He wasn't some person who had been misled himself. He wasn't a wanderer from the truth. There was certainly that accusation from the Jews. It also wasn't from impure motives. He wasn't doing this to get rich. It's, this was not part of some deceitful scheme. He has to say that because that went on in his day, just as it goes on in our day. I had a friend in seminary, Ryan Speck. I saw him just a couple of days ago at General Assembly. We had a, a wonderful conversation, and, and seeing him I was reminded of a story he told me in seminary about his father. His father is a, 
is an academic. He's a college professor. Uh, and he was coming to take a new post at a, at a college. I think it was actually in Memphis at the time. And uh, early on, they were beginning to look for churches to which to attend. And one of the first Sundays, they went to sort of a mainline Presbyterian church and, um, and came and worshipped and seemed like, mm, this is, could be worse. It's not so bad. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, he's meeting the pastor. And the pastor says, oh, you're, you're, you're a university professor. I would love to talk with you. And he said, sure, that'd be great. He goes, why don't you come back to my office right now? I've got a little time right now. And so they went back and they sat down and, and immediately the pastor begins to apologize. And he says, hey, look, I just want you to know a lot of what you, the things that you, you heard, that's not really what I believe. That's just kind of for, you know, kind of how it is. That's just kind of for the simpletons that are out there. It's just to keep the old ladies happy. And, and, and just, you know, so, so don't, don't think that that's what was really going on with me. I'm respectable. Well, my, my friend's father was a very much committed evangelical. He believed the word. And so, so he was delighted, first off, to learn the truth. This was a church he would not want to attend. And secondly, to tell the man, turns out I'm one of those simpletons too. And I won't be attending this church. This is the reality. There are insincere people, insincere preachers that exist in our day. There are people who do it for ill-gotten gain. They do it because they, they love to be up front. They love to have people hear them. But it's not the case with Paul. Paul is absolutely certain that he is following Christ. And even as he, he testified once to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves in apostles of Christ. He says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul is reminding us that that, that preaching Christ deceitfully is satanic. It is of of the devil. It's always satanic to lie and Christ exposed the Pharisees when he said the same of them. When the devil speaks, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Meaning he is the father of all those who speak lies. Paul was speaking no lies. He was giving them the truth. He was not holding anything back of what was true. And there was a form which his delivery of the truth took. Look in verses 4 and 5. That third mark of his is sincerity. He says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Paul is going out of his way not to flatter. And this is a wonderful thing about Paul. Paul compliments. He, he talks to this church early on. We heard this before. He spoke of their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of God our Father. He, he celebrates and he commends what's right and good in them. Their reception of the word, their hospitality towards Paul, their enduring of persecution. He's happy to talk about all of those things. But he doesn't go into flattery. He doesn't try to manipulate. He doesn't get in good with them by saying nice things to them and complimenting them on their clothes and and, and, and their their refined speech or their cooking. That's not his way to to ingratiate himself by false things. There's no door prizes in his church. There's no seven verses of just I am to work people's emotions up to get them to walk the aisle. No anxious bench. Paul simply does what he, he can do. He speaks the truth in sincerity. He preaches Christ in obedience to God, and he does so in service to them. 
And that leads to a, a fourth mark. It goes along with his sincerity is his humility. We see that in verse 6. He said, we did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Again, Paul is not only a thief of them, of trying to get money from them, but he's also not a glory thief. He doesn't mind taking that humble role. Even when he has an opportunity to, to legitimately say, hey, look, it's right for, for the, um, the labor is worthy of his wages. It's right, I'm ministering to you, this is hard work, I'm, I could be doing other things, I could be off tent making with this time and making more money, but it, you could help me out by compensating me in this situation. You could make it easier for me to preach the gospel. He could have said that, and he wouldn't have been wrong in doing that. But instead, he's going to forego that because he doesn't want there to be any sense that he is doing this from wrong motives. He's looking to a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Paul will let himself suffer so that the gospel can go out. Paul's glory was abandoned for the sake of the salvation of those that he loved. He could forego honors. That was not a problem for Paul. And then there's, a, there's a, a fifth mark of faithfulness we see in Paul's ministry. You see that in verse 7. He says, We were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And think about this, this quality in a pastor. Paul is not a drill instructor. And I highly respect drill instructors. If you see any of my former drill instructors, tell them I said so. That, that's important. But that's not Paul's role. Paul is, Paul is not just trying to cram things down people's throats and punish them into submission. Paul is characterizing himself using the picture of a mother who is tender towards her own child. And as mothers tend to do, they pour out themselves for the benefit of their children. They work to to grow their children to the best version of themselves that they can be. And they usually do this at their own expense. Think about the the life of moms. Fathers, sorry, we're just going to pass you right by right now. Moms do things that men can't do. A nursing mother is, is genuinely, literally pouring out her life into her child. Paul is doing the same thing at his own expense. He is giving himself his time, his knowledge, his wisdom, his experience, his wisdom, everything that he has. He is with the Thessalonians and he is pouring himself into them so that they can benefit and become the best version of them, which is those who embrace Christ and those who grow in Christ and become obedient to Christ. And even that remark, it says that he, he was gentle. This is that quality Paul says that belongs to ministers. When he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient. Paul taught this and Paul lived this. This was his, this was his manner of way. He, he knew them individually and what they needed. That, that's what gentleness does. It speaks in a right way that a person can, can accept. It takes time and attention to, to be gentle with someone. It's, it's so much easier just to shove something in the direction you want it to go. But that's not what Paul did. And then look at verse 8. We, we see a, a six mark of his faithfulness that shows how deep it goes, his, his, his desire for them. He says in verse 8, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, our own souls. Because you had become dear to us. Paul's language here ventures into the language of love between a husband and a wife. He's basically saying, because we we love you as we do, because we desire your good so much, we are willing to give you everything we have, even our very souls. 
few relationships outside of marriage venture to that kind of language. That's, that's poetic. Shakespeare would be happy with that. But Paul's saying there's nothing that he and his companions would hold back from the church that might do them good no matter what it costs. Once again, Paul is looking to a Savior, Christ, who laid down his life for the sheep. And then we see in verse 9, that seventh mark of faithfulness, his diligence in ministering. He says in verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Paul uses three different synonyms for work in there and and probably better translations. The first one should be toil. The second one should be hard labor. And the third one should be the kind of work that gets things done. Paul and those with him, those ministering as part of his apostolic band on this this mission trip to Thessalonica, they're showing an intensity towards redeeming the time day and night, using their own resources, breaking their own backs to keep the gospel free of charge, delivered on time and in time. They weren't going through the motions. They weren't grumbling about what they were being obligated to do. They, 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 they didn't ever bring up the complaint that they're wasting their time and these people aren't hearing or enough of these people aren't hearing. They were, people, they were a team that had a purpose. And it was really the most glorious purpose that anyone could have, to declare Jesus to the nations, to the salvation of souls. And so they worked hard with intensity and with focus and with dedication because they believed in the work and because they loved the people. Well, then we come to verses 10 and 12, and Paul sums it all up. Your witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. This is one of the things where Paul is pointing out. He, he's not boasting about what he was doing when he was, he was with them. They had witnessed it. They had seen his team at work. This was, this was a known thing that no one was going to refute as they were reading this letter. And he's also not bragging. He tells you in the next part, he says... We exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Fathers do what they do and don't expect credit for it because it's their children and because they love them. And it's their duty to see that happen. Paul is simply doing those things that must be done, that are right, that that any good father knows. Paul wants them to remember their experience with him and that they have been brought to believe, that they have been stirred up by his example And that they would also walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. How how do we respond to to seeing this example in Paul and what he's done? Well, I think we can, first off, just remind you, these these are fundamental Christian virtues. These are not something that just pertains to a mission trip. These are things that belong to anyone who names the name of Christ. I think we can, we can actually kind of reduce these down and, and talk about a way in which a spirit-filled life would show these according to, to three categories here. And the first one is that believers should be characterized by sincere gospel communication. The second is that we should have a serious others orientation. And then the third is that there should be sacrificial service that characterizes us. So I got some alliteration in for Pastor Dodds. There you go. First off, sincere gospel communication. Paul manifested a specific kind of courage in his message. He boldly spoke of Christ. He freely spoke of Christ, knowing that it may cost him dearly to do so, but he did it anyway. Paul was driven to communicate the truth. As John wrote, 1 John chapter 5, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has believed the testimony that God, he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you have the life of the Son of God, you have the testimony of the Son. It is who you are. You are a walking testimony. How can you not communicate that? I can tell you why you don't communicate that. I can tell you one of the reasons in our age that you don't communicate that is because we are, we are overwhelmed by, by both uh, polarization and, and tribalism. Is that we have the, these horrible tendencies, some because of the particular technologies of our day, but tribalism has really always been kind of a thing, to separate ourselves from others. And especially if you're a follower of social media today, that you know that it is constantly reminding you that you need to separate yourself from other people. You need to look at everyone and decide, are they a friend or are they an enemy? And in doing that, in putting everyone into the category of friend or enemy, we forget that biblical category of neighbor that Christ taught us about. Neighbor doesn't require you to know someone's politics, does it? It doesn't require you to demand your party affiliation before we can have a relationship. It, it, it doesn't ask you where are you are from, uh, what's your ethnicity, who are your people in order to do good, as Christ taught us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The neighbor is someone who has need of us, and we have the capacity to meet that need. And because we miss this biblical category, we miss the opportunity to warmly and graciously and certainly and confidently speak to people about their spiritual need. We miss the opportunity to celebrate Jesus with them together when you find out that you're both believers. Or for an unbeliever to hear for the first time that there is someone who has changed your life and, and changed your path from hell to heaven, from death to life. Instead, we waste precious time being suspicious and worried what risk there's going to be to ourselves. That's not what Paul teaches you. And I know it's definitely easier not to talk to them. It's almost as bad as having to make a phone call. No one likes to make phone calls anymore. But that's not a biblical option. We are commanded to speak the truth in love. We are called on to, to proclaim the truth of, of what's happened to us by Christ. You have been set free. And because you are free, you have liberty not to be in bondage to sin or to silence, but to proclaim the name of Christ. You know, the ninth commandment forbids us from being a false witness, but we can also be a faithless witness by not witnessing, by not telling people about our Jesus and if you have the life, you ought to be a changed person. You ought to be owned by Christ, and it ought to show up with others. Second thing that we consider is being or having a serious other orientation. Paul's, Paul's emphasis on nurture and his affection tells us that he gave himself to thinking about others. And his thinking about others wasn't an end in itself. It was something that moved him towards doing them good that needed to be done. Again, this is a never-ending battle that goes on in our heart where we are constantly going to be struggling by saying, what's in it for me if I talk to that person? Is this going to work out for, for my betterment? And thinks my situation going to improve by talking to them? But remember what Christ taught us. He said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. 
Paul's orientation towards others made him gentle, made him kind, made him loving, made him know people and seek to minister to people where they were as they needed to be ministered to. And so do you look at people that way in your life? As, as a parent, do you look at your children and do they frustrate you and do you, do you see them as an impediment to your happiness? You are thwarting me. You are causing me grief. Why are you in this house? Or do you look at them and say, I have a work to which God is calling me. Those, those, those cries for attention are calling you to, to pray and to intercede and to, to, to dive into your child's life and do them good. Likewise, if your employer is difficult to work for, are you thinking, I deserve better than this? I should have a better situation. Or is your response to think, you know what? I have not prayed for this man. It, it has been months since I've prayed for him, but I have complained plenty. What would Christ have me do in this situation? He would have me pray. Maybe your church isn't measuring up to your expectations. You're thinking, you know, that I don't know if my needs are being met here. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, loving strangers. It's clear that we have to be oriented towards others, even when, when our needs are not being met, when we're not getting what we expect or what we want, as the call is to turn outward to others. And of course, it's by sacrificial service. 127 times the New Testament uses the, the, the words bondservant or servant or slave, all the same Greek word doulos, behind them. 127 times. Do you know that the, the minority of those is talking about actual slaves? And the vast majority is talking about people in service roles. And it's actually one of the favorite titles that, that, Christ disciple, that Christ's disciples have for themselves. Where did they get that? They got it from Jesus who said in Matthew 20, 25, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, the deacon. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How hard is it for you just to serve without expecting recognition or compensation? Think about this. You only have so long to serve. Your, your time of service is running out. You only have so long to serve your children before they leave your house. You only have... So long to serve missionaries when they come to visit. You have only so long to give to urgent financial needs before those needs go away. You have only so long before your body wears out and your back is not useful anymore and your purse is empty. You have nothing left to give. That time is coming as well. There's a choice to make. And a choice to make to seek those rewards that are not in this life but those rewards that come from above. To seek where immortality is. Paul taught us to seek the praise which is not from men but from God. He taught that Christ taught that the Father who sees in secret himself will reward you openly. And all of that is a call to live differently in this world. It's not natural. It's not logical. It's not advantageous to live the way that, that Paul is calling you to live. But what he says is true. And the gospel he preaches is true. There is a God in heaven who sees and who knows and cares and who rewards this kind of life. 
So Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 17, he says, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. We are called to see differently, to to know the world differently, to have a different experience because we are the redeemed of God. We have been made alive by Christ and so we can live for Christ, so we cannot preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ and him crucified and ourselves as bondservants for his sake. May God bless us to do so. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we ask you for that grace which we so desperately need to become what you have called us to do. May we look, Lord, not being distracted, may we look at the example of the Apostle Paul and then consider our own lives and hold it up to scrutiny. And ask ourselves, are we faithful witnesses? Do we declare Jesus Christ? We turn away from ourselves and toward others, and are we willing to serve? Lord, help us that we might do this for your glory, and also, Lord, for that fruit which comes for those who would believe the gospel.